You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Joining me is M. Henry Hines, MIT Class of 1967. His recent book, First to File, Patents for Today's Scientist and Engineer, was published last fall. The book is Every Basement Tinkerer, Ambitious Startup Employee, and IP-Minded CEO's Best Friend. It is his third book. Heinz lives in San Francisco, where he practiced law for four decades, and now in semi-retirement, consults and writes. Henry Heinz, thanks for joining me. Why did you choose to write this book last fall? Oh, well, you know, this book came out about a year after the America Invents Act, and that was that was one of the biggest changes in patent law uh, that came around in a long time. In fact, the most comprehensive set of changes since 1952, and that, that was 70 years ago. The reason for the law is that a lot has changed in that 70 years, and, and there was a lot of pressure on the patent system to to address those changes and, and to adjust to them. For instance, the, uh, the whole corporate culture has changed. Employees are much more mobile these days. They move around from one corporation to another, and they take their intellectual property with them, and sometimes they even leave their obligations behind in terms of what they owe their, their former employers. And then the, the patent litigation, if you end up in a patent infringement suit, the cost nowadays is huge. It's certainly much greater than it was in the early 50s, and that's raised a lot of concerns and the need to, uh, to come up with some alternatives to actually going to court and spending $5 million plus. Any, any corporation and any CEO can understand the need for that. And then there's, there's also the pressure from, from abroad. Uh, international agreements for enforcing intellectual property and other kinds of commercial uh, international agreements in general, some of them have run into a roadblock because of inconsistencies between U.S. patent law and the patent law of, of those countries. So one of the things that the new law is all about is moving further towards conforming the law. And in fact, the title of the book is First to File. And that's one of the biggest issues and the biggest changes um, that the law uh, brought about. That, that refers to when competing event inventors that have the same invention are competing for patents on the same invention, how those disputes are resolved. It also affects the definition of novelty. That's been changed, too. So all these things... See, there's a whole, a whole web, a whole fabric of changes to the patent law. So it seemed like an appropriate time to work all these into a fairly general book on the subject uh, directed to the scientific community, the engineering community, management professionals, corporate professionals, entrepreneurs, managers, directors, officers. Take us back to uh, the eve of March 16th, 2013, the chaos leading up to the enactment of the smith Leahy AIA law. Well, one of the interesting things about the law, which, which makes the whole, the whole field rather complicated, is that there are pending applications and patents still in force at the time of the enactment of the law, and they were grandfathered in under the old law. So you have a combination of the old law and the new law, and there are different parameters in each one. There's difference, uh, differences in, in what's patentable, what's not patentable, and many of the aspects of the regulations, of the statute, um, of the requirements, and, and they're coexisting. So it makes it rather confusing, and you have to sort out uh, which applications got in before the deadline and which ones did not. So, of course, 
people were aware of this fact, and they ramped up the filings. So, so right before that deadline, up until the, the last day, patent applications started appearing in the patent office so they could get in under the old law. So one of the things that, that I do is I set the two laws side by side, and I take various scenarios, and I show how they would fare under the old law and how they would fare under the new law. You cover cases in this book covering widgets of all varieties. You've got cooling fans, laser hair removal devices, bike chains on bicycles, but also you get into computer code in in MP3 technology, advertising, gene analysis, medical methods, uh, banking software, etc. I wonder if you could tell a story that that one of those cases depicts that uh, is either a favorite or uh, surprised you to learn of the PTO's decision on the matter. One of the ones that was really the most fun, and that was the clothespin. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and I, that attracted me because the, the claim, which is really setting out the meets and bounds of what the patent covers and what it doesn't cover, essentially describes it in terms of the physical structure of the clothespin. It, it went after something like two pages, which I thought was hilarious because once you start reading it, you can't figure out what the hell they're talking about. So that was a, a case of, of not being able to identify the novelty and not being able to uh, know what to do with it. Uh, what, what you need to do is find the core, the, the point of novelty, and then work outward from there and to give you a, a patent that will cover the basic core idea and, and all the reasonable variations on it and not be not be limited to unnecessary details of physical structure or things like that, parameters. So that was fun to, to get into. But all of the other, the other technologies, they were all included in there to, to illustrate various points as uh, what, constitutes, uh, what constitutes novelty, the different ways of finding novelty. And, and the fact is that um, the typical inventor will look at other inventors who have a large number of patents and say, boy, they must be brilliant, and where are they coming up with all the ideas? It's really more a question of recognizing a patentable invention, a potentially patentable invention when you see it. Uh, There are many um, very small differences that could lead to patents and that people very frequently think of as being trivial. Very valuable, particularly when you're you're working up a, a corporate patent portfolio or any kind of uh, patent position for, um, for a startup to work up an intellectual property estate to identify and find these things. And because most of the time they're right under your nose and you, the typical experience of working in a laboratory, working in a garage or whatever, working with your coworkers, discussing with, uh, with your advisors, uh, with your managers, and you're coming up with these new ideas every day. A creative way of approaching this is to understand the various different things that the Patent Office recognizes as novelty. Uh, reading through the cases that you cite, um, sometimes surprising decisions of the Patent Office, one learns how subjective that office is, and studying the, the makeup of its members must be useful to patent thinkers, not as political bodies as Supreme Court. That's right. Well, the, the, uh, the patent office, the, the requirements for an examiner is that the examiner be uh, skilled in the art in which, or the technology in which the examiner is examining patent applications in. So, uh, yes, it's very important that the examiner understand uh, the technology, understand where the novelty is and, and what, uh, why 
that point of novelty should be worthy of the grant of a patent. And in order to do that, you have to have a, a solid technical um, background. And um, the law, as a result, is, uh, is based in technology. Uh, all those, those parameters of what's patentable and what isn't, those questions are all based on technology. And you know something? It varies with the different technologies. What makes something patentable in chemistry is very different from what makes it patentable in electronics, in software, in, in clothespins, <laughs> in mechanical structures, in, in, uh, in business systems. The examiner who is assigned to the case will have uh, familiarity and comfort in those areas the attorneys, of course, have to have comfort and familiarity as well. Sometimes when you get into court, uh, and including the Supreme Court, all the way down to the trial courts, you are not that fortunate because the judges and the juries don't fully understand the technology, and they have to rely on the, uh, on the attorneys to explain it to them. Now, in many cases, they get it right, but uh, it also depends on... on uh, which attorneys argue better and present their case better. So sometimes you do get a distorted view, and sometimes you get uh, downright wrong reasoning. You write that the average settlement of, of a patent dispute has gone down in recent years when a judge is involved, but gone up when a jury is involved. Is that right? I think that's probably true, yeah. Uh, and juries in particular have to be educated, but, but you'll find that uh, if you've ever attended a, a jury trial in the voir dire process, they don't want their, their jurors to be too educated because they don't want them to start to reinvent the inventions themselves. So they're trying to reach a balance between the man on the street, as it were, the woman on the street, and the, uh, and the professor in that area of technology. Obviously, they don't want someone who's, who's really an expert sitting on the jury, but they don't want someone who is... Um, who's totally uh, at sea in the technology. Uh, in any case, the jury has to be educated, so they, they need someone who's a quick study. But um, you, you have all these factors when you're dealing with jury selection, and you never know what a jury is going to decide. Tell me, uh, five years from now or ten years from now, you publish another edition of this book. What has yet to be written on it? Well, what happens uh, over the course of the time, of course you, ha you have the international pressures and, and the pressures from the... Uh, from the corporate community, but technology continues to evolve. And when that happens, uh, since patent law is based in technology, and since the questions of what patentable, what's patentable and what isn't, the kinds of things that, sh that should be patentable, that keeps on changing as new things emerge. The law will continually try and adjust to this. Of course, the law lags behind it because these things don't uh, end up in the law. And when I say the law, I mean the examiner's decisions uh, up to statutory changes, but those are, those are the slowest of all, of course. So these developments are, are all vetted through the courts, and you get to read the arguments that are made. Um, I, I read um, court decisions all the time. Some of them are, are just wonderful and fascinating, but what happens is the, the laws evolve, and uh, the new technologies work their way into patent laws and public policy considerations about patents. There's a, a whole chapter in this book, of course, on, on uh, subject matter eligibility, the question of getting your foot in the door in the first place. Will they even consider a patent on this type of subject matter? Business uh, methods, for instance, that was very controversial when that first came through. Um, manipulating the genes in one's body and, and various ways of testing genes to 
determine aberrations um, and, and all those fascinating things that, that really keep on developing. It represents some great breakthroughs in, in medical science, but uh, raise these questions in patent law. Will we see more companies like Tesla, which gained all sorts of news last year for opening up its patents on the, what is it, the Model S electric car? And uh, oh, is that a press stunt? I don't think we know. <laughs> it's one or the other. Um, the pressure on corporations that, or on any patent holder that that, um, that holds a monopoly on something is is great. Uh, the more valuable the monopoly is, of course, and and the bigger the portfolio of patents. And there's public policy, there's public relations, um, there's all kinds of implications there that affect how a company is viewed by the public and by the industry. Decisions are made with all those considerations in mind, and, and I think we've seen quite a few. We're probably going to see a lot more decisions that we, we haven't even thought about yet. There, there is a movement that patents uh, are, are, are too strong. They give too much power. The Apple uh, decision was really um, a lawsuit relating to um, cell phones with rounded corners. Uh, that certainly raised a lot of eyebrows. And, and that, that, of course, it went on for many, many years. It ran into a huge amount of money. Uh, both in, in the legal fees and in the uh, and in the verdict, so um, people look at this and wonder, uh, what are they thinking? How could they have patented this? It's a fascinating, wonderful field, and and the fact that it is kind of the intersection between technology and and industry and business decisions. So. There'll be no shortage of reading for you in the years to come. Uh, <laughs> How is your MIT education alive in this book? It, it certainly is. I'll tell you, it's not only uh, in writing the book, but in, uh, in practicing patent law. Uh, the one thing that you need, of course, as I mentioned earlier, whether you're um, an examiner or, or, a, or a patent attorney, you need to have a fairly solid background in the basics, and MIT uh, supplies that. Um, you also need to be a quick study because you're dealing with areas that you you may or may not have, have spent much time in in your undergraduate years at MIT. I mean, my, my degree was a few decades ago. <laughs> and and you're dealing with new technology. You're dealing with some cutting-edge stuff. So I, I, I use my MIT textbooks uh, for uh, on various occasions throughout uh, throughout this process. And Almost 50 years later. Yeah, quite a few years later. <laughs> They're still good. Tell me what else, though, speaking of reading, is on your nightstand right now. I've been reading books by uh, by Mike Malone, Silicon Valley. Uh, I started out with his most recent book that just came out earlier this year, The Intel Trinity, the history of the three guys that uh, formed Intel, and the whole history of the company um, and how it's business decisions that they made um, and mistakes that they made and what they dealt with them. And then I went to uh, one of his earlier books entitled The Microprocessor, A Biography. Uh, that's a, a little bit of a dinosaur because it was published in 95, but still there, there was a great deal that happened up to that time in terms of the development of the technology, and he goes into uh, wonderful detail in it there. The next thing that I have on my list uh, since I'm on this uh, Silicon Valley kick is uh, a biography of Steve Jobs uh, by, by uh, Isaacson. Um, I'll be reading that over the next few weeks. Uh, Henry Hines' latest book, First to File, Patents for Today's Scientist and Engineer, is now available online or at your favorite local bookstore. Dr. Hines, thanks for joining me. My pleasure.